0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Chris Sloan, the Chief Operating Officer of Capital Medical Center in Olympia, Washington. Capital Medical Center is a 107-bed hospital with about 600 employees it is part of life point health a for-profit hospital system headquartered in brentwood tennessee chris joined capital medical center after retiring from the army medical service corps in september of 2019 with 23 years of service as a military medical logistician and hospital administrator during his service he deployed to kosovo in iraq and ended his career as the chief operating officer for Madigan army medical center, one of the army's largest hospitals. In this podcast, we talk about Chris's military career, transition to leadership in the civilian sector, his leadership philosophy. And since this interview was originally recorded in October of 2020, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope you enjoy listening to Chris's story and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening. And here is Chris Sloan. So Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: We're glad to be here, Mark. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to chatting because we have a a military connection. You are a graduate of the MHA program that I used to teach into when I was in the army. So I want to start by just kind of asking, what drew you to the military?
1: So unlike or not unlike many folks, the military was not necessarily on my radar screen as I was moving through high school. But into college, my parents said, here's your graduation gift, we're going to give you one year of college, the rest is on you. And so I had to figure out how to how to shape uh, staying at the University of Tulsa. And I was introduced to the ROTC program by a mutual friend. They said, hey, we'll give you some dollars if you take this military science class. And I said, that sounds like a win-win and uh, enjoyed it. And really, it, they told me they could put together a scholarship packet. And I ended up getting a ROTC scholarship to cover my last years in college. And, and that, that started me down my pathway uh, towards becoming a Medical Service Corps officer.
0: So you were majoring in, I think I saw, biochemistry? That's correct. Did you have an idea that you, that sounds like pre-med or something along those lines, was that?
1: Yeah, very much was interested in becoming a doctor and uh, the practice of medicine. And so I was doing the the requisite pre-med coursework. And when it came to the time to decide on a commissioning and a core to join, I did not have an educational delay in hand, which would allow me to apply and go to medical school. So I said, "Well, since I can't be a, a doctor right now, we'll choose something that's pretty, pretty close. We'll just give this Medical Service Corps thing a shot." And uh, ended up being such a great uh, turn of events. I I really fell into an enjoyment of the support role that the Medical Service Corps does from from its initial phases of a, a career in as a Medical Service Corps officer doing the support to the infantry and the deployable operational side of the house, and then culminating my career and transitioning through the Baylor program and doing hospital administration, couldn't have drawn it up any better. It just worked out so fantastic for myself, for my family, and just was so grateful for what the Army and and a career in the Army has been able to do for us.
0: And so uh, I didn't say, but you are, you did retire from the army. You did uh, a little over twenty years.
1: Yep, twenty-three years in in the army active duty.
0: So tell us a little bit about kind of the arc of your career. I'm, I'm I'm curious about maybe so twenty-three years is a long time. That's a that's a good you know that puts you kind of mid career, um, mid career like considering a say a forty year career. Not mid you know obviously
1: mm-hmm.
0: your military portion of your career. Tell me you know you you said you came to really like it. What was the, you know, what was the transition into the military like and and what were your early jobs like?
1: So my my early jobs were very closely aligned with deployable military operations. Uh, was, I was did my first assignment in Korea as an executive officer and then went over to Germany directly after that. It was assigned to an infantry battalion and that's where I really formed some great friendships with some key leaders and, and allowed me to see what the real army and supporting the real army look like. And we deployed to Kosovo uh, in the initial occupying force in 99, which allowed us to put into practice all of the academic and book work of setting up a battalion aid station and how do you set up and run uh, exchange points for casualties that might show up and it's what it's what, uh, you know, a young uh, aggressive officer wants to do, put that into practice. And it was a great experience. And uh, returning from that, I was uh, able to change jobs, remain in Germany, and uh, was then looking at doing Balkans operations and so supporting Kosovo and Bosnia. And that operational piece, I had to, was approaching my captain's time in I went to the advanced course and while i was at the advanced course attended the medical logistics course as well at the request of a friend of mine and and that medical logistics was of an amazing transition in my career i was like wow i i really like this and so i was doing medical logistics uh, i went to i went back to uh, germany after those courses and was a support operations officer and was in charge of all of the sport aspects for medical going into oaf one. and so, when it came to moving hospitals, supporting hospitals and the medical units across the core, uh, that that was all under my bailiwick and it was it was an awesome responsibility, and uh, you could see the impacts that that logistics has on supporting the force from a medical perspective, as well as just a regular, you know, I need materials or supplies of this nature. So after after that, I was selected to go and instruct at the medical logistics course in San Antonio. So I actually taught for three years, um, young logisticians, and during that times when I actually uh, decided to attend the Baylor program, and when I got into the Baylor program, I just fell in with a lot of good. Uh, good officers and, and really found an interest in healthcare administration. It, it's not unlike logistics. Uh, logistics, you are solving problems before people realize they have them. And in healthcare administration, you are trying to solve problems before they actually happen. Uh, and affect patient care and it's just a, and it takes into consideration a whole lot more aspects from the patient care side to to the logistics, to the support and and patient care aspects. And so it was a natural transition, although I don't think it is a typical transition, but having the framework of mind from problem solving in a support role of a logistician, I think has really helped me approach the administrative functions in a hospital uh, with a different perspective, with a process perspective, Lean Six Sigma uh, uh, approach to taking care of people and processes and the product of delivering healthcare. So I just, it's been very um, complimentary and really my career is built on it. each experience with a little bit more complexity to bring me to where I am today.
0: Yeah, let me, uh, let me uh, ask you to maybe expand a little bit you said logistics, you know, um, for folks who are, don't have that military background that you and I share, um, you know, your experiences prior to coming to Baylor were mostly field units, right? So these were units that could actually deploy and, and go off to fight wars. Um, then you come back to, you went to Baylor, did your MHA, MBA, um, and made that transition from logistics to uh, more of a uh, hospital administration focus where you spent the kind of the balance of your career. So what's the, like for a, for a civilian person who's never really experienced the military, I'm sure they know the word logistics, but what does that mean? Can you give an example of the kind of problems you were solving?
1: So a lot of folks have, have seen the UPS commercials where, it's logistics, and, and it is a pretty generic form, and, and I really think the logistics is not just one thing. It's more of an approach to solving problems, and, and, and that may be an overly simplistic uh, statement. However, if you think about what we do or what we did in, in a medical logistics forum, uh, on a battlefield or or in the settings where we're supporting a unit, that unit is there to do something. It's there to move from point A to point B, or it's there to provide health care. And it, everything that it goes into supporting that effort really falls in this massive bucket of logistics, whether it is supplies that they're using, It's not just the medical band-aids. It's the fuel that the generators will use. It's the food that the patients and the staff will consume. It's the resources on how to communicate and get information and predict the consumption of those so that we don't go without. So we really want to be able to provide solutions to those entities that are needing support before they actually call for it. And so we had to move things, and when you move things, it's not like calling up a moving truck and a couple of folks come out and they, they pack up everything into a truck and then they drive away. Although there is that physical aspect, it's the planning for what route do you take, how many trucks will it require, and how many people is it gonna take to pack up, and then Uh, At what time do you coordinate your move with all of the other moves that are going on and is your priority for movement as high as an infantry battalion who's, you know, moving to contact or something along those lines. So the coordination aspects, the complexity of doing this support almost in you know multiple dimensions uh, ha- it requires some thought and there are medical logisticians that that are just phenomenal leaders because they think in in very different planes, and those those logisticians are are remarkable at what problems they can solve. I was fortunate enough to be able to do some of this problem solving, and and it just it it matched my mentality and my approach for process improvement and and the like, and and that that ability to think and problem solve proactively really complemented my ability to uh, look at healthcare administration through the same lens, because there's always a crisis in a hospital, but you have to balance the future work that you do to get out of playing the Whack a mole every day, because there's a fire that goes on—not a literal fire, but there's a crisis that happens every day that can consume you. However, how do you balance your time and the competing uh, uh, demand for resources within a healthcare platform? And I've, that those early years of, of going through the mental gymnastics of logistics problem-solving has really helped shape my decision-making now as, as a uh, chief operating officer in, in a healthcare entity.
0: So you made the transition from uh, the field of logistics, medical logistics in the Army, and transitioned formally to become a 70 Alpha and administ- uh, Medical Service Corps uh, healthcare administrator. What was it like for you to make that transition? You were saying that the uh, uh, experiences that you had in logistics have kind of gave you a, a grounding, but it's still different, right? So what was it like?
1: So that transition was actually really similar you you solve problems the same way you try and anticipate where you're going to have an issue and you and you work towards that you you look at proactive solutions and you do that with whether it be data or observations as a logistician you can get to predict the demand of a particular item using par levels um, how much you keep on a shelf at what point do you reorder but you've got consumption rates, and you can calculate what those are. In healthcare, you have similar signals. You can look at your patient census, or you can look at a particular facet within that patient census, or demand signals for outpatient, and do that same predictability on what we're going to need. And that need's not necessarily gonna be from a supply perspective. It could be, do I need another provider? Uh, Is this service line uh, growing? And then if the service line is growing, what do we need to be able to further support that? Or if it's on the decline, what is that cause? Is it something we need to adjust in a strategic plan? Or uh, are our resources misaligned within the organization? Or is it a people issue that we need to address from an HR side of the house? So I think that really uh, that transition was very straightforward. um, And and just the, the chess pieces changed a little bit
0: you had had in mind that you would prob, you know, that you were training to go to medical school, didn't have the, the educational delay, meaning the army expected you to, to go into service immediately. At what point did you say, you know what, I really like this. Uh, I really like this medical service thing. You know, I like the logistics and I'm not going to do the medical training.
1: You know, I, I think that, that decision happened somewhere while I was in, um, my my duty station in Germany with the 126 infantry falling in with the people and having that sense of cohesiveness and common goals as leaders and and then moving into you know, although the Balkans was a peacekeeping mission it was operational in nature and and those types of of relations and dedication to something that is bigger than yourself very much resonated with me as a person and i liked that part of belonging to something uh greater than me and so those relationships within the army and the dedication to to that mission uh were really key to saying you know what this is something i can can bite off on and and would enjoy doing for the rest of my career
0: and then i you know talking about a career at what point did you decide that you were going to do a career in the army and a career meaning at least 20 years. When did you know, okay, you know, I'm not going to do like three, four years and just, and, and head back to to civilian life.
1: I had said early on that the military is, is something we're going to, we're going to do, and we will continue to do it until it ceases to be fun. And I know that's might seem very simple, but that speaks to each one of us has a certain threshold for professional satisfaction and it might have been you know just me being younger and say, "You know I'm gonna do something that's fun, it's exciting and and gets me going professionally and and i but I did continue with that mantra as long as I was enjoying what we were doing and and I had a lot of very unique opportunities uh, throughout my career that kept it interesting. two tours in Iraq, uh, you know, a tour in the Balkans, and lots of travel therein uh, with the army and to continue to increase the Responsibility levels, the promotions, and being parts of just fantastic organizations—where the First Infantry Division, 101st Infantry Division, uh, 30th Med Brigade—these are all strong organizations. And then, you know, when I transitioned to support in the hospitals, you could see you were making impacts on people as a whole, and it—it it was very satisfying professionally to continue down that pathway. And it continued to be exciting. And so it was, it was really easy to just say, yep, let's take another adventure and let's move and let's take on a new challenge. So uh, it it became interesting as we, you know, built a family, got married, had kids, they were along for the ride and that we all enjoyed it and just kept moving forward uh, to the next adventure. So it made it really easy to continue to go.
0: So, I mean, and you had a very successful kind of second half of your military career where you uh, did a number of, of COO roles kind of culminating with uh, the DCA or Chief Operating Officer, as, as we would call it in the civilian sector, for Madigan Army Medical Center uh, in Tacoma, Washington. What made you decide? Um, uh, so this was you, you, just, you left Madigan in... Uh, July of, of 2019, 23 years of service, what made you decide now was the time to, to make the jump back to civilian life?
1: So there were two pieces that, that were instrumental there. Uh, my child was approaching high school, and there were opportunities that were presented to me, and I had to make a choice. And family has always been front and center. And I promised my girls that I would give them four years at the same high school. And that's not necessary in line with an army plan, and so it was time to make a decision as to what's right for the family, what's right for the career, and we had a window there as I finished up my three years as COO at Madigan, where where what are the next steps? And Madigan is one of the largest um, and complex hospitals within the military healthcare system. And what a better platform to step off from and transition to a civilian um, or a commercial healthcare administrative job. So, bringing that experience, the the moon and stars aligned, and and it was a very clear decision to be able to, that that was the right time to to culminate a very successful and rewarding career and and embark on a new adventure as a uh, healthcare administrator.
0: Great. Um, So how did, so for, you know, this is an area I've had some interest in and done some research in as a, as an academic, looking at um, military um, officers like yourself, making that transition from their military career to civilian career. So I'm curious, uh, maybe you could share with us, like, what was the process? How did you, how did you find your uh, role uh, at Capital Medical Center?
1: So it, it, was, it was not easy, honestly. I ended up being super fortunate and able to transition to a chief operating officer without actually having to move. I don't know if that happens very often, but the, it was just lucky, I guess. And, and I was able to transition to a, a local hospital as a chief operating officer. But that did not happen without many, many months of, what am I going to do next? How how is this military experience actually going to translate to um, for-profit world or not-for-profit hospitals? The application process uh, was was challenging. Having done a lot of networking within the American College of Healthcare Executives and friends that I have that were were executives themselves had never been in the military. Everyone was very, very supportive and, and very open to providing feedback and recommendations. And you know what, uh, talk to this person. This person helped me out. And so they actually helped build that network to be able to to aid in that transition. And I, I've since uh, tried to be that same person for fellow 70 alphas that were looking to transition as well. And the advice that I got I, was, was amazing because when I look at the resumes or the, the plans that some of my fellow 70 alphas or um, Healthcare administrators in the military have, they, they wrote resumes that were very analogous to a military curriculum vitae. Uh, that does not carry water in the civilian uh, healthcare arenas. It doesn't make sense. It's not a it's not a language that is spoken, and so being able to translate the experience in the military to civilian healthcare terminology and important points. So uh, saying you led this or that is different than quantifying it with business terms or um, measures that that can be translated to what the civilian sector measures and that was very helpful advice that I got early on, is translate it so that they can see the results of your leadership. Just leading doesn't do anything. You've got to demonstrate what you have done, and so I've written my resume, and I got advice to write my resume in that um, manner, and so it caused me to go back and read, and uh, all of the Evaluation forms that I got in the military and say, man, I wish I would have been more specific in my accomplishments uh, because I had to go back and calculate things and Once I was able to do that. I did see um, the benefits when I changed my resume to a more quantitative measurable approach. I was then receiving phone calls back or discussions and and that second follow-up from the HR person and had opportunities to interview, and and it very much helped. Because I think once you got your foot in the door, the experience and leadership aspects that are part and parcel to a military officer's career come through. It's just getting in the door that is challenging, especially on that first job out of the gate uh, post-retirement. And so, uh, I'm sure we'll talk later about some of that that uh, discussions on the differences between civilian and military healthcare. But at least in the the job uh, hunt and application process, once we once we were able to actually do face to face interviews, those leadership aspects came through and saw a lot more success.
0: That's good advice, and consistent with a lot of what I've what I've heard from other uh retirees is 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 a, a lo- i think a lot of military people tend to say well we did this and you know my team did this and they don't take responsibility or claim you know and and claim right, rightfully what they act, what they did as individuals so let me so let's uh let's talk a little bit about your first your first job out out of the military you've been uh with capital medical center uh since uh since fall of of 19 so yeah, going on a little over a year. Uh, tell so you're in uh, Capital Medical Center is in Olympia, Washington. Um, for people who are not familiar with the area that you're operating out of, can you tell us a little bit about Olympia and kind of maybe how it influences your organization's mission and maybe relationship to the community?
1: Sure. So, Olympia, Washington is. Is in the Pacific Northwest, and I I often tell people, "Oh, I'm in Seattle," because people know where Seattle is. It's way up there on the the top left of the United States, and uh, it is south. It is actually south and west of Seattle. The Puget Sound comes down, and we're at the south uh, south south portion of that Puget Sound. But Olympia is a town that. That is the largest town between uh, us and the Pacific Ocean, and so for Capital Medical Center, one of one of the pieces that it has to look at is as healthcare evolves and those community hospitals, those those acute care. Uh, platforms that are present and we're supported as those are losing their ability to recruit and retain specialty services those specialty services requirements are collapsing to the next levels and as the largest hospital between us and the, the Pacific Ocean we're starting to see that here and so our relationship with our community is an important one we have community members we had the former mayor on our board We've got lots of active community members that are on our board, in addition to uh, surgeons and, and physicians on our board, that keep us engaged with our community, and that engagement helps us gauge our support, our efforts, and and really helps us connect with those that we take care of each and every day in the facility. So we, you can't separate a hospital from the community that it that it. It supports, and our engagement with the community is really key. And one of our strategic initiatives is 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 building upon that relationship and better supporting and being more visible. So,
0: so tell me a little bit about, or tell us a little bit about uh, Capital Medical Center. So, maybe give me the give me the the broad brush um, description. You know, maybe number of beds, number of employees, some some of that kind of statistics.
1: Sure. So, Capital Medical Center is one of two large hospitals in in Olympia. It is is not the market leader. It actually has a fraction of the market. We have 107 beds, but we do hold many specialties. We have employed uh, surgeons, as well as multiple primary care platforms, infectious disease, a robust radiology uh, platform. We've got about 600 employees that are here. Of course, we have multiple folks that work part-time to help support that. And it, it is a complex organization in the way that it supports in, as a smaller hospital can. It does not have the full gamut of specialty care that a level one trauma center would have. So there are some balances on our capabilities. We have a limited size of an emergency department. Um, simply because that's how it was built 35 years ago, and so uh, we've got uh, uh, an organization that supports the community and and is able to take care of those uh, without question uh, on our on on a healthcare front.
0: So so let's talk about you. Let's talk about your role. Um, uh, what so as the COO, how do you fit into the leadership structure? Uh, at Capital Medical Center.
1: So the the leadership structure of Capital is not unlike most for-profit or not-for-profit organizations with a chief executive officer and he has a few chiefs that report to him. We have a chief operating officer, a chief financial officer, a chief nursing officer, and a chief quality officer. We do not have a full-time chief medical officer because of the size, although we have a physician that helps us uh, with our quality and physician engagement uh, on uh, that works in the quality department. Okay. So my role as a Chief Operating Officer is the backup to the CEO and is charged with the process and the well-functioning of the facility writ large, and I believe that this is not unlike the function of the chief operating officer in the military healthcare system although the the responsibilities are are somewhat different and okay. um, some of those differences mostly revolve on what departments report to the chief operating officer because in the military the chief financial officer is has a limited role within the running of the facility Whereas in the, the um, civilian sector, the chief financial officer has a much larger span of control uh, within the organization. And so there are multiple departments that report to the chief financial officer. And those are complementary to some of the departments that fall under the chief operating officer. And of course, the clinical, um, the patient care areas are falling under the nursing side of the house, et cetera.
0: So talk about the scope of your responsibility, like what kind of departments are you overseeing? What kind of like on a day to day basis, you mentioned you're the backup to the CEO. But, you know, how do you what is your portfolio of responsibility?
1: So from a, a direct leadership uh, perspective, underneath the chief operating officer is imaging services, which includes, you know, radiology, um, radiation, oncology, cath lab, IR. It's a pretty complex uh, radiology function. The laboratory, uh, environmental services, uh, engineering services or facilities, security, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, security, dietary, and the hospitalist. Huh. And so I've got seven departments that report to me. And some of those are departments that I've not had experience before, like dietary or hospitalists or physical therapy and occupational therapy. Um, those those were new. So there was some learning curve with that. But you fall back to basic leadership and understanding and find common ground as to where our long-term goals are. And you have smart and very gifted Uh, leaders in those departments, and it makes everything run a little bit smoother.
0: We had talked, you know, we kind of have rushed up against this a little bit in our conversation so far, but I'm curious, what do you see? So you've been a year, you're a year into your experience, a a little more than a year into your experience as a civilian leader. Where do you see the biggest differences in military healthcare versus civilian healthcare?
1: I would say that there are far more similarities than there are differences. Uh, And I hate to put a percentage to it, but just picking one out of the air, I'd say it's 80% exactly the same. Okay. Because in healthcare, as a leader, you're there to take care of people and you're there to take care of staff and ensure that there are no barriers to them being able to do their job. And that's 90% of what I do. Is, is give people the resources and make sure that they know that they've got the support that they need. If there's a, a challenge, they know that they can, they can speak up and we will work towards a solution. The difference is, we, we covered a little bit, the organizational structures a little bit different. Um, the Army, of course, has a wide uh, variety of acronyms that are not necessarily translating uh, to the civilian sector, although, a lot of colorful phrases that have helped uh, bring some levity to Capital Medical Center. Um, we have terms and, and examples that we use in the military that, that are different than than uh, in the civilian sector. And so a lot of my peers find that amusing. And uh, <laughs> so we've got uh, certainly, a, a, uh, I would say, a more focused approach towards The business aspect, of course, the military healthcare system does a phenomenal job of tracking metrics and and data analysis to support uh, efficiencies and that is not um, that is not uh, any different from the commercial side of the house or the for profit world. They focus they focus on different metrics and learning the nuances of those metrics and and which ones are leading indicators and which ones are lagging indicators in the for profit world are a little bit different than those in the military. So that that is one of the 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 biggest transition is how do you track the business function. And understanding that and being able to be versed in the process counting FTEs full time equivalents in healthcare, is a critical skill, and one FTE does not necessarily equal forty hours a week because we have eight-hour shifts, ten-hour shifts, twelve-hour shifts, weekend shifts, and so learning how to calculate staffing models appropriately has really been one of those pieces I've had to dig back into the math and, and really work to understand.
0: One of the things that I have heard a lot, and it sounds like it's you're you're talking about it a bit, is is that is that fact that you know, in the military, we're not as focused on the business side of things. In particular, my conversations with former military have, have, have really rotated around, uh, or the biggest differences, some of the biggest learning they've had to do is, is understanding revenue uh, and revenue generation. Is that a thing that was new for you as well?
1: Um, I think to a point, I think we, we had a fairly good understanding of revenue and adhering to a budget. Uh, analyzing and tracking the budget expenditures over over the year projecting next year's budget strategic i think most uh, at least the senior 70 alphas did that uh, very well otherwise they wouldn't be senior 70 alphas and uh, however the nuances with tracking the budget are are a little bit different because the manner in which you review in a for profit world is on quarters and you look at your capital expenditures and you you have the ability because there is um, capital budgeting to look two three years in advance or span your expenditures over a calendar year or physical year and the approach to look in multi-year bunches is different than the annual approach within the government and so, some of the nuances for and projecting of capital requirements, and the detail and focus that we go into uh, building the budget each year—that is much more deliberate on the for-profit or or the uh, civilian side of the house than it was in the military.
0: So I'm curious. I mean, you've talked a li- we've talked a little bit about metrics. I was wondering, what metrics do you pay the most attention to now in your new role? Um, kind of you know what do you look at daily maybe monthly or quarterly uh maybe annually what what kind of things are you paying attention to
1: i believe that really what we look at as as a as a chief operating officer is dependent upon the director one of the things that i i try and work with my directors on is what is important what do we need to look at and what is the periodicity at which we review them So what my EVS director and I talk about is going to be very different than what my imaging director or my lab director and I talk about. So we sat down early on and established what are the leading indicators? What are the important pieces to you as a director? What are the important pieces that you as a department use to support the hospital? And we track three to four metrics in each department, there are tons of metrics to look at, but we collectively decide on three as the key ones that we will use as bellwethers to the functionality of that department. And we meet monthly to go over those. And we might temporarily look over a different metric that might be of a particular interest, but those leading indicators that we agree upon at the beginning of the year are what we're going to track throughout the year. And so we. We trend those. We look for progress. We look at putting together plans to affect change if necessary. One thing that I don't track one-on-one with my directors on our meetings is FTEs. However, we talk about that pretty much at least twice a month to look at and monitor. We see the FTE utilization by department or the hours that are worked by department and the productivity of each department statistic um, regularly and so we watch those like a hawk to make sure that we are keeping in line with the budgets and so budgets as i mentioned before are very exacting and they're they are they are weighted by month if they if we know that march historically has always been a high volume month then the expectations on productivity for March are going to be elevated. And so we look at that FTE because in healthcare, the largest expenditure in healthcare is salaries. And so that's one of those things that we watch very closely. In the military healthcare system, that was not something that we looked at other than a big number at the bottom of the budget line. Here we look at the variance in the salaries by week, by month by trailing 14 days and of course, compared year over year.
0: I'm curious, what uh, major initiatives are you responsible for at the hospital? What do you, you know, um, what is it that really is exciting to you that you're working on uh, in your role?
1: I, I think what I, what I look forward to each day is making a positive difference in the organization. So we've got individual departments that report to each one of us as executives. And that's, and that's what we do each day is we support them and, and we allow those directors the autonomy to go out and do great things. But I think where we're successful as an organization is asking that question, what else can we do? And as a, as a chief operating officer, you're, you're an individual that is not constrained by a particular silo. Our our success as chief operating officer is breaking down silos and getting different departments that might not necessarily have worked together in the past, but to find mutual uh, common ground to be able to do something better for the organization. A great example of that is we were having uh, feedback from our nursing staff that, you know what, these glucometers just aren't working. And our lab director um, over eight months, uh, was not able to make any progress on getting the glucometers to populate the result into the electronic health care record. Now, that particular lab director uh, chose to depart the organization. We brought in a new lab director. That lab director that came in uh, dove right into this, engaged with our nursing staff to understand the implications of this, engaged with our health information a technologist to understand the flow of the electronic healthcare record and engage with the contractor that worked and provided the glucometers and was able to figure out voice of the customer and a voice of the business and bring it all together and find a solution that allowed not only for that reading to go directly into the patient record and increase the quality of care, but it also ensured that That measurement was being credited to the organization that that work was being done because it wasn't in the past and and it allowed for The lab to gain credit for the work that it was doing. And so our ability to See and realize potential as chief operating officer is what we do. It's more of an art form. There's no recipe to go solve this problem or that problem. We've got to be able to figure that out and that vast experience that many chief operating officers bring to the table allows them to see beyond the daily crises that happen. And what do we need to do in 90 days to put us in a better place? What project can we work on for a year that takes critical or crises off of our daily to-do plate? That, that ability to look forward um, is what I think uh, is a great attribute for a chief operating officer. And then it helps the organization itself progress and become smarter, more efficient, better skilled, and allow us to promote the, the skill sets that our department level leaders are bringing to the table.
0: You joined at a, a good time. You had a good six months or so before we, uh, you got plunged headfirst into one of the biggest public health crises in the last hundred years. What's it been like leading in a uh, during this crisis, leading during um, period of trying to deal with the coronavirus?
1: This was an interesting time, to say the least. Uh, the The coronavirus turned healthcare on its side. First, it was we were scared of the virus. Then then we were figuring out the virus and our stances as a society on how to deal with the virus. But as a, as a hospital, when the patient volumes decreased because elective visits, uh, outpatient visits were all being canceled, that was a difficult uh, time. Because when all of those patients are canceled and um, the surgeries uh, postponed, will the hospital volumes dry up? And as I mentioned before, the salaries of the individuals um, are are the most expensive part of healthcare. So what do we do with that? How do we balance the support to the, our teammates that that need to be here, but we don't have patients to take care of? And so we we had to look to to the covid crisis is how to take care of people what is the best way we can take care of each other from a personal perspective and then still maintain the capabilities and high level of health care that is present within our organization so we did that um, really from an approach of emergency management uh, many many administrative folks are familiar with the hospital incident command system uh, which is FEMA's approach to solving you know uh, crises or um, you know responses to to catastrophic events like hurricanes. It, uh, the Federal Emergency uh, Management Association (FEMA) they they have an incident command system, and the hospitals support that with the hospital incident command system. And so, really, that that transition to operating in a crisis type of platform allowed us to speed communication. It allowed us to transition information, quickly spread information, react, and reorganize our facility in a new setting to allow us to respond to the many variables that were presented to us, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, When we had personal protective equipment shortages, the mask shortages, or the treatment protocols, changed, if the aerosolizing procedures were were um, the list of aerosolizing procedures changed, we were able to quickly utilize that communication mechanism to disseminate that information and share that with healthcare leaders, not just our hospital, but the independent providers that are in our community to help everyone deal with such a, 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 a new and significant change in how we deliver healthcare uh, in a rapid fashion. And so really, we we adjusted to maintaining our um, hospital incident command structure for for nearly 60 days. We're still in it, uh, technically, because we are responding and meeting regularly to talk about the latest updates in the COVID crisis, especially now that we are experiencing a, a peak and surge in, in cases. But we manage things uh, through that organizational structure in conjunction with our local emergency management response uh, centers in the community and the state, as well as the, the COVID task force that is present within LifePoint, but basically making sure we've got all the resources and knowledge that we need to ensure the safety of our community members and ensure the quality of care in our hospital.
0: So you mentioned LifePoint has, has a COVID tax task force, um, how useful was it to you to be part of uh, LifePoint during this crisis?
1: The the support that LifePoint gave to us during the crisis was amazing. In so much that because of the size of the organization, they were able to leverage um, uh, relationships with suppliers, and and because the spread of the disease across the nation moved at different speeds when we were in our most critical time frame early on we were able to get and cross level personal protective equipment from one community that was not being hit they were able to support us with some critical shortages that we were experiencing here and and vice versa because as we started getting bulges of uh, personal protective equipment show up here the disease was spreading uh, to other communities and we were able to support them in like and so so from from a knowledge perspective of very, very smart individuals uh, at the HSC helping and combing through uh, government um, guidelines, CDC guidelines, the the state uh, guidelines. How do we reopen uh, in a safe manner that supports the community? uh, These stepping points and ability to leverage knowledge and experiences from 90 hospitals to bring about best practices was really uh, helpful for us as an organization, an individual organization nested within a community.
0: So most hospitals shut down for all but emergency services for for a fairly long period of time. Where are you at in terms of recovering now? And and kind of what's what's mostly like back to normal and 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 or normal new normal maybe and and what what are do you see still struggling
1: so our our pathway back to normal was was really a deliberate one when when we were looking in the pacific northwest at reopening we could not move back into doing elective cases until we got the green light and approval from our county And the county's ability to open up was dictated by the phases given by the state. And so we were really waiting for that green light from Thurston County to be able to open back up to elective surgeries, opening up outpatient appointments. And and as we did, and as elective surgeries were put back onto the books, we knew that there was going to be some transition um, in getting back to, uh, quote, normal day in a hospital and so we were deliberate in how we opened back up with limited number of appointments. We did fractions the first week, a little bit more the next week, a little bit more the next week, Um, but some of them never got to pre-COVID throughput simply because of the social distancing requirements. Take for example physical therapy. You you, You would be in a physical therapy room, you've got lots of people that are that are doing their exercises but because of social distancing some of those appointments had to become a little bit longer the appointments had to be staggered we had to look at different ways of doing the modalities and the protection of our staff and the screening process to get into the building had to be looked at so it changed a lot of how we approach it but for for example the operating room we started with with general surgery and some other smaller surgeries before we opened the aperture to take in more complex orthos and spinal cases. So we gradually moved back in to you know prime the engine um, and, and return to normal. But as we got the surgeries back up, the patient's senses went up and we brought in more people and and we were able to get back to a sense of normal
0: what would you say? Uh, is there a silver lining in this? Have, has the organization maybe been able to grow in some ways that, and maybe has it, has it broken some old ways of doing business that, you know, now you look uh, you look at the changes and you're like, wow, we actually, you know, we've actually made progress in a way.
1: I think that the biggest, at least, you know, and this might be obvious, but, Emergency management is an additional duty for many people in healthcare. It's one of those things based on Joint Commission. You have to have so many emergency management exercises to make sure that you're competent in in running uh, uh, your organization in different situations, emergent situations, and when you do not normally run those emergency management exercises. For multiple days. Well, we ran them for multiple months, and so from that aspect, there are were clearly lessons learned across many facilities. I've talked to peers within LifePoint or friends that are uh, in healthcare and in, in other organizations, but almost all of them utilize their their um, incident command system structure for reporting. and and being able to track information and support to the facility. So those abilities for hospitals to respond in an emergent situation, uh, clearly a lot of lessons learned and a lot of processes were refined to support the hospital. We recently, as a result of of the COVID-19 epidemic, completely rewrote our emergency operations plan, which talks about and guides the facility in transitioning from regular operations to emergency operations. The, the number of lessons learned that you can gain from a you know, three, four, five month long operation uh, were vast. And we put those back into practice. We essentially scrapped the old one and, and, and drafted a new one and actually did a practice exercise And it was, it was logical. The staff report from our our debrief or our feedback afterwards was, it made sense. We need more practice doing it in this new fashion, but there was a shared understanding of why we were operating in a different capacity and how the reports needed to flow and the importance of who needs to be communicated to and and how we exercise that. So, the real silver lining from an emergent management perspective is that there's a lot of practice and, and experience now in these organizations to respond to emergencies. So, you think you, know, you have a, a response to an earthquake or a tornado or other natural disaster, those lessons learned are directly applicable in those, in those emergent situations. Um, but from, from a facility's perspective of, of doing healthcare, we maintain our ability to do healthcare throughout the pandemic. We certainly looked at infectious disease protocols and and how do we treat patients. And I took it, it took a lot of um, uh, review, um, but we had to refresh our knowledge of our organization. How many negative pressure rooms do we have? How many how many uh, HEPA filters do we have to convert some other rooms to be able to treat patients? And it 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 really helped us. Lift the, hit, lift the hood on our organization and understand what true capabilities we had. And honestly, there are a lot of leaders that emerged from this, um, and their skill sets and their abilities to to really further professionally develop themselves, and 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 the potential for larger levels of responsibilities or promotions came through. Um, and so we, we were able to promote some folks as a result of this because they showed true leadership and, and that's always good for the organization to know that we're vested for our, in our people and, and we'll recognize them for great accomplishments.
0: So speaking of leaders and, and leadership, uh, I thought maybe we'd transition to talk a little bit about leadership. So I wanted to ask you, I and mean, this is a common question in the military, less so I think in, in the civilian sector, what would you say is your leadership philosophy?
1: My leadership philosophy is, is twofold. And one, we are all here to help. People don't come to a healthcare facility, a hospital, because they want to. They are coming to a hospital because they need assistance. It might be the patient that needs assistance. It might be the family member accompanying a patient that is lost in the facility, but everyone that comes to a healthcare facility is looking for assistance. And our ability to support that uh, is what is special about healthcare administration and those in the healthcare industry because we are here to help people get to a better place. And my second piece on that, health, on that leadership philosophy is invest in people. No doubt, healthcare could not be more of a people business. Our, our business is taking care of others, whether that's the treatment of the patient or taking care of them through an episode of care, or maybe it might be a long term of care. But we are people, and those that are taking care of the patients are people themselves. And so we've got to be able to invest in our folks to be able to become better at their vocation, more skilled, more competent. Or increase their levels of, of um, capabilities and recognize that and help um, each other uh, support and better deliver care to the patient. So when we invest in in our leaders we're going to help them get promoted. We're going to help them do more complex procedures we're going to help them find efficiencies to better take care of patients from a quality and safety perspective but as as leaders in healthcare we consistently have to seek out opportunities to invest in our people because they stay with an organization because they trust the organization that they feel professional satisfaction and they're recognized for their accomplishment and money is not a long-term professional satisfier it scratches an itch People stick with an organization because they feel valued and you demonstrate the value um, by investing in their future and helping them realize their potential.
0: How did you come to that philosophy? Was there a leader that really influenced you that you admired or where did you pick that up? Or was it just something that kind of evolved over your experiences?
1: The, the investment in, in people and, and helping them uh, professionally develop, it's evolved over time. I, I really noticed it for the first time, the difference in, in healthcare during my residency phase as part of Army Baylor. I, I was a resident working in Baptist Health System in San Antonio and one day a year baptist health system rented the entire six flags campus the entire park and opened it up to baptist healthcare employees to say thank you we appreciate it bring your families have a day on us here's here's your food enjoy the park and that was not a one day event You saw that approach to taking care of staff and valuing the staff that supported the patient care pervasive in their approach to delivering health care. It it became very evident that they put more efforts and resources towards staff satisfaction than they did patient satisfaction. Now, that might not seem immediately uh, evident as to why they did that. But they operated under the presumption that with happy staff come happy patients. If you have an unhappy staff member, there is no amount of customer recovery that can take place to make your patient happy. So they understand that an engaged, valued employee is going to bring a perspective to the bedside in the patient treatment that a person that is trading hours for dollars is not going to do. And so by embracing that philosophy and valuing the employees, they were able to bring about patient satisfaction metrics that I really haven't seen paralleled in other organizations. The the military, for all of the great healthcare that it provides, focuses a tremendous amount of effort on patient satisfaction scores and makes strategic decisions based on patient satisfaction scores. However, you see investment in patient satisfaction scores. You don't always see it in hospitals investing in employee engagement strategies. So when I came and transitioned to Capital Medical Center, I was seeing and wanted to carry that same vision forward on investing and taking care of people. And what's remarkable that I see at this organization as well is its dedication to its people, the, the efforts from as early as the newcomer orientation to familiarize newcomers with the culture that they're stepping into, to the individuals that stand up and, and, and um, do the extra things to make a patient experience special for those that might be in the organization or in the hospital bed for a long time. Those engaged employees make a difference. And so really shaping that uh, similar approach to engaging employees and investing in employees and making them feel valued is what we're trying to bring to to bear here and throughout you know my career is something that's that's helped me um, see people as people and not as objects and and really being able to bring the personal aspect of healthcare to bear. So it, it's been a, an evolution, but it really started at that stark realization when I saw how organizations invested in people and the results that then uh, were exhibited.
0: So I mean, I w- that to me seems to tie into this idea of organizational culture. So how are you trying to shape organizational culture? I mean, you're one of the senior leaders in the organization. Uh, what's your responsibility for that? And, and, and how do you go about doing it? Well,
1: one of the, extra jobs that a Chief Operating Officer often does is strategy. And strategy is more than developing just the growth opportunities for the next year or the next two years. Strategy has to deal with not only growth, but it has to deal with the organizational growth. So the people, the strategy for the engagement of our employees, it can deal with the strategic um, process improvement functions in the organization. But as, I, as I'm looking at roles of the chief operating officer, shaping culture and ensuring that that strategy and the cultural is cascaded down to the directors, to the leaders, to the managers, to the individual employees, that's an important piece for strategy. And, and one of those roles that you see chief operating officers have is how do you build accountability and organization? Well, that's, that's really culture. And you can't have culture um, that is a positive culture without accountability. But you can't have accountability till employees own part of the process. So the ownership aspect really is important. And you get the ownership through employee engagement. You hear organizations we need more accountable. We need to hold people accountable. But you really can't hold people accountable until those individuals own the process, and they know and understand that they own the process. And that's one of the pieces that we're working on now. We've had some new leaders in the organization post-COVID or as a result of COVID. And we're trying to reinforce that ownership of the departments, that each department leader is the CEO of their service line. They own it, and they have uh, autonomy uh, and to shape the direction and communicate. In, in, in the directions that are best for the organization. And obviously, there are limitations to that. But we want to carry that approach to the directors so that they know that their role is important and that they're valued in the organization.
0: So you are talking about hiring new leaders. What do you look for when you hire a new leader?
1: That's a That's an interesting question. I think it varies based off of of the role that you're hiring for. I've had the opportunity to bring on new leaders, many of them in the military healthcare system, many of them here uh, at Capital. And I think each department needs a particular kind of leader, depending on where they are in a maturity level or where they are in a productivity level. Each department needs a particular type of characteristic. And I think as a hiring manager, you need to determine the vision for that particular department and anything that is helping them get there or items that might be distracting them from getting there. And that's where you're really looking for particular characteristics to shine through in that hiring process. Uh, my, My particular approach is to develop that vision with that department? Where do you want to be in five years as an imaging department? Or where do you want to be in three years as an engineering or facilities department? Do you have particular leadership gaps? Or do you have particular processes gaps? Or is there something that we need to put into our portfolio of skill sets that are that is absent right now? And when we've had that communication with the department, that might be before the leader retires or Maybe the leader departed and you've, you've got uh, an opportunity to speak with the department as a whole. Getting that um, unpolished feedback is very valuable. What do you want to see in your next department lead, Department X? Uh, I've done that for, for a couple of departments, and the feedback was very, very valuable. And that's how I shaped my hiring process. Part of the vision that that we as a, as an executive leadership, want to see the hospital go, part of the vision that the department wants to see in its leaders. And then we hire and screen in that, uh, with that end state in mind.
0: So I wanted to ask you a a question uh, that I like to ask senior leaders. And that is, uh, what is a leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? So something that maybe, uh, you made a mistake and, and had to recover from it uh, or something that wasn't what you thought it was going to be as a leader?
1: Don't let the plan get in the way of making a difference. And yeah. in that, that was a lesson I learned early on in my career um, because we as operators, our job is to make plans. We uh, we make a plan. We execute the plan. We want to make it smart and efficient and uh, not impactful to uh, individuals. And we want it to be successful. And so, as a as a young lieutenant, we were we were in Kosovo and we were short. Uh, we were running short on some first aid packs for the entire uh, battalion. So the battalion has you know 600 people in it. And we we ordered them and and they were coming in slowly they didn't come in in a big bunch and so my plan was to issue them all out on a regular logistics run on the same day so we were waiting for them all to come in and then we would push them out and the the executive officer or the chief operating officer if you will of that battalion found out that we had some on hand and we were not issuing those out to the soldiers. And he came down in a a not so subtle way, helped me realize that that was probably not the right way to go about it. The, The take home message from that conversation was if you have a resource, there are people need it more than your shelf. And your job is to enable people to be successful and to get those supplies and resources out to those who need them. And so I've taken that approach and that that hard lesson learned on that day, and I've really worked towards projecting and pushing out those resources to those who need them as quickly as possible. And so I think that's really where it comes to bear in in an approach to to healthcare is that lesson learned on, on not letting the plan get in the way it was going to be a beautiful plan on how it was all delivered, make a radio announcement, hey, you should see your first aid kits come today. But you know what? Those first few groups that received their first aid kits first were, were happy to get them, and they needed them. And that plan, although it looked really neat on paper, probably was not the right way to go about it. And so I look at that right now as, as, a, as a leader in healthcare. We, we always are looking at making plans. but are they realistic and are they impactful to the intended audience? So if you look at a Lean Six Sigma uh, approach, there's always an aspect of voice of the customer. And I invite all of my directors to, to visit that. When they're making recommendations, what is the voice of the customer? Who are you supporting and, and is this right for them? Can we do it faster because it sounds like they need it? And asking those questions and keeping that perspective of who are we supporting has been very helpful And whenever you're putting the patient first or you're, whenever you're putting the customer or your department or the individual that you're supporting first, you really can't go wrong.
0: It sounds like that EXO, maybe in his not so unsubtle way, did help you out. Uh, and and has given you, gave you some kind of career changing advice. What advice do you find yourself giving young leaders most often?
1: As I was working on our strategic plan for 2021, I had a realization and, and and it revolved around how do we get people to embrace this? We were talking earlier about accountability and ownership, but how do we foster this in the culture? And, and I don't think there's one tried and true measure to drive employee engagement and ownership and accountability. And I was trying to figure out what it is that we can do. I've heard uh, leaders um, say that we want, we want our junior leaders to act on an intent or an implied task, meaning I don't need to explicitly tell you to do something. You should understand that this needs to be done and then go forth and go do it. But you're not always going to have somebody there to be able to tell you to do this or this is the priority. So in the absence of of opportunities that are providing that clear guidance forward, how do you operate when there is not clear guidance? And it resonated with me as I was working the strategy That's where it comes from. Your culture is driven by your mission, vision, and values, and what you stand for. And and I wrote this down, and I have a sticky note on my computer monitor. And, And it talks about mission and vision. And it says, the mission speaks to the work at hand. How do we go about doing this or that? This is what we're going to do. But you often hear companies, what is your mission statement? What is your mission statement? You don't hear the vision statement covered as frequently as you do the mission statement, but for me as a leader, I really rely upon that vision statement, because I believe the vision statement speaks to your culture, and your culture will give the parameters to make a decision in the absence of guidance, and so without a clear vision, we're not going to be a clear culture, and so when we look at our mission, we're looking at how do we do our daily work but our vision speaking to culture shapes who we are and who we want to be in the future.
0: I like that. Well, let me, Chris, let me, let me ask you one closing question. And, and, and I think, you know, I teach mostly young undergrads these days um, who are uh, hoping to go into healthcare administration. So what would you, what advice would you have for these early careerists, these, you know, young 22 year olds who are heading out, into the world, perhaps into the world of, of, uh, COVID-19, right? Um, what advice would you have for them as they launch on their careers?
1: My advice would be to build perspective and perspective uh, can be handled in many ways. It's, you're certainly gaining a big perspective when you go through advanced learning in school and graduate school, you're getting the book answer. And, That book answer, although important, is not always how it's going to be executed when you get into a a job or, or a residency. There's always other things that influence that. But your perspective allows you to get clarity of mind and to see more than just the problem at hand. But you'll gain that perspective through affiliations with professional organizations, networking, continuing to educate yourself, whether you get a Lean Six Sigma um, certification, every healthcare administrator has to be good at solving problems. So whether you use Lean Six Sigma, FMEA, root cause analysis, pick pick your process improvement platform, but learn one and learn it well. Because you will rely upon that for the entirety of your healthcare career, because there is always a crisis going on. So my first bit of advice is to get that perspective, and and build that through volunteering, doing hard jobs, um, and talking with people that have been there and done that. You'll find that is those folks that have been around the block are happy to share experiences so that you don't have to go through those same challenges. You can, you can, you can do that through networking, you can do that through um, uh, meet and greets with ACHE or HIMS or pick your professional organization, but network, share stories, gain information, but figure out a process improvement platform that you can internalize and then be able to execute.
0: It's great advice, Chris. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate it.
1: I'm happy to do it. And if there's anything I can do to be of assistance, either for, for you or to be that mentor or um, person to share uh, stories or um, questions, I'm happy to do it.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community and we'll talk with you again soon.